This is episode 151 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cells and Aging with Dr. Pekka Catayisto. Hey everyone, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We hope you've been enjoying our special mini-series of episodes recorded at this year's ISSCR annual meeting. We'll be coming at you with the last of the series next week, and it's going to be a very special one. Because in addition to having a couple of great conversations with researchers at the meeting, we'll also be hearing from some very talented research trainees who will compete to break down the complexities of their research projects in the most engaging way possible in only one minute. And the winner will be decided by you. Tune in next week to find out more. Moving on to today, we have Dr. Pekka Katayisto from the University of Helsinki and the Karolinska Institute on the podcast to talk about his research into the mechanisms that lead to the decline in tissue regeneration during aging. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, but first, we'd like to remind our listeners about intestinal cell news, one of stem cells free weekly scientific newsletters. Intestinal cell news summarizes all of the latest research news, jobs and events in intestinal cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Friday. Save time and keep current with intestinal cell news. Subscribe for free at intestinalcellnews.com. We're not starting in the intestine. We're going to end in the intestine with uh, Pekka. But I want to start at the top in the neural with some oids. All right, we got some oids. It's the season of oids. It's been the year of oids. And uh, this is a new kind of novel oid from my mentor, my graduate school mentor, Ali Brivanlu. He's no stranger to uh, synthesizing things into their larger order structures. And let me elaborate on that. Neurulation. That's the oid we're talking about here. It's a neuroloid. This is a paper in Nature Biotechnology that just came out from uh, Ali at the Rockefeller University. I don't need to introduce him, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, neurulation, it's one of the first steps of embryogenesis uh, where you get these ectodermal derivatives. So this one lineage, ectoderm, breaking down into these various derivatives, including neural progenitors, neural crest, sensory placodes, and epidermis. Okay, that's neurulation. So let's think back. You know, early days, there was a whole dual SMAD inhibition. There was a lot of methodology that were used to generate the cell types that are present within the neural lineage, but it was a kind of deconstructed approach. We could break it down. You know, we could get the cell type, but could you get the whole order structure, all right? So mechanistically in those studies, it was found that transforming growth factor beta inhibition specifies the anterior neural plate by this default neural induction process that Ali actually pioneered in the seminal studies in the 90s. My man's done it all. Also, bone morphogenic protein, okay? That's signaling at the edge of the ectodermal dom domain. That acts as a morphogen gradient to pattern the mediolateral aspects of the neural plate, okay? With high signaling specifying epidermis, no signaling, as we said, leading to the neural fate, and the intermediate levels generating the neural crest and the sensory placode. Also, you got Wnt and fibroblast 
growth factor sitting in there doing stuff, all right? So we, like I said, we've broken it down. We've deconstructed it in many labs, notably Lorenz and a lot of other people have contributed to this. But all these signaling activities haven't really been integrated into the whole. And that's where Ali comes in. That's his specialty, synthesis. He likes to bring it into its ordered whole. He's always been interested in human development at the embryo level, not deconstructed to the cellular level. And it's important because a lot of human genetic diseases, namely Down syndrome, we know, DeGeorge's disease, Leopard syndrome, they're uh, accompanied by defects in multiple ectodermal lineages, right? Also, pediatric cancers like neurofibromatosis often affects a lot of ectodermal derivatives. Also, neural tube defects. There's all kinds of tissues there that are affected. It's not just one cell type. And we can't really understand these conditions well because we're not looking at them in their global tissue context. We, we can break them down maybe in vitro with these cell models, but we can't see the interactions between these multiple ectodermal lineages. So, of course, Ali and his lab, they're going big. They have a lot of previous stories using micro-pattern technology to make these ordered structures here. They do a similar process to recapitulate early human neurulation in a large number of identical structures. They call them neuroloids. Okay, I led with the oids. These are neuroloids, a new and novel type of oid. And of course, they did some single-cell seek, because you got to do that too. That unveiled some precise identities and timing of fate specification within these neuroloids. Um, and showing mechanistically, they, they showed that the self-organization with these in these neuroloids, uh, there was a pulse of SMAD1 phosphorylation that was inductive, that induced the epidermis, and it was juxtaposed to the central neural fates, um, and then in, in between you had the neurocrest and the sensory placodes. There you go. Then they went on with the disease modeling and used an isogenic Huntington's disease human embryonic stem cell line uh, combined with this deep network analysis, deep neural network analysis to show that there were specific phenotypic signatures that arose and how that was related to the mutant Huntington protein. So this is a, a system, right? They created a new oid that, that synthesizes all these different cell types into a whole that recapitulates a process that allows you to assess the consequences of genetic disease and it outlines an approach for drug screening to try and you know, address that disease. Uh, I, I grew up with Ali, so I'm not surprised, but uh, this is a pretty major story that I think takes it to next level. We're at the meta now, Arun. We're not talking about cells anymore. We're talking about structures, and I'm not surprised to see Ali leading the way. All sorts of oids coming out these days, man. You know, we talked to uh, Dr. Alison Muotri a couple weeks ago about his most recent foray into advanced brain organoids and you know i think it's it's a really hot topic everybody's doing it everybody's got their own variant of brain organoids cardiac organoids everybody's into oids these days you know but this is something that you know i i asked dr Moatri about this you know you have all of these advanced brain organoids and this is a really advanced developmental model for the brain 
starts make you know you start to think you start to think like how advanced do we actually want to go with this kind of thing right like we're we're recapitulating development in a dish and you know at some point maybe we don't want to go that far i don't know what do you think well i can tell you one thing from experience with ali it takes a lot of courage i think it takes a lot of caution he's always been willing to push the envelope when i was in his lab my graduate thesis was taking human embryonic stem cells and injecting them into mouse blastocysts to generate chimeras. All right, and I'll tell you how we did that. We pushed and we pushed and we pushed to get a sensible limit on where we would take them developmentally. We would limit the, the, the stage that we would allow those embryos to go, but we had to push to, to get the permissions to do it at all. And I think uh, that, that typifies Ali, is that he'll push into these controversial fields but he'll do it in a way that's very careful. And I'm sure he's working on something that is, you know, similarly perhaps controversial. But he's doing it, I think, within a, a very well-circumscribed bioethical kind of boundary zone. And I would love to bring him on the show and talk with him about that because, you know, neurulation, neuroloids, you might have some, some people, uh, I don't know, speaking up about that. But that's for another show. Arun, what's next? Next up, we got, you guessed it, more oids. More <laughs> applied oids these days, actually. So this paper is titled Biomanufacturing of Organ-Specific Tissues with High Cellular Density and Embedded Vascular Channels. This is more of an applied oids kind of paper. It's a science advances article that's coming out of Boston, that's coming out of the Weiss Institute. You know, they do a lot of phenomenal biologically inspired engineering, as they call it. All sorts of applied biology, applied engineering to study development, to study organ generation. They're, they're doing all sorts of good stuff. So we know that we can, you know, the ultimate goal, perhaps the ultimate goal of regenerative medicine is to grow organs, right? You know, growing organs in a dish or in pigs or whatnot, you know, I think that's, in my opinion, that's, that's an ultimate goal for regenerative medicine and for stem cell biology. But it's still a daunting challenge. And you need billions and billions of cells to be rapidly organized into these functional units that can replicate perfectly a developing organ or an, or an organ. And we're not exactly there yet when it comes to our in vitro models of you know organs in a dish or whatnot. And so we need this readily perfusible circulatory network whereby we can inject nutrients into these organoids, into these tissue engineered constructs so that the interior of the structure doesn't really die off. It's a really important engineering challenge that folks like, you know, Dr. Jennifer Lewis and her lab are attempting to uh, address. So we have some, you know, there's been some work on de novo biomanufacturing of 3D tissue graphs and Ultimately, you're gonna need this vascular network. So right now, existing modalities for 3D bioprinting don't really use the right cell density. I mean, there, there's some really good work that's been coming out over the last few months and few years. But in general, 3D bioprinted structures lack the right cell density and microstructural complexity that you actually need to have a physiological relevant level of function and that's kind of what it all comes down to right you want your 3d engineered constructs to be functionally accurate to actually have the function that you know they they actually have in in vivo 
So, of course, we can use human embryonic stem cells, iPSCs, as our building blocks for these 3D bioprinted structures. And you can use them as, they actually coined the term here, organ building blocks, or OBBs, for biomanufacturing patient and organ-specific tissues with the right cell density, composition, architecture, and like I said, very importantly, function. And also importantly, you wanna have that right network of vascular channels. So embedded 3D printing was kind of their approach. And more specifically than that, sacrificial or so-called fugitive ink printing in a cellular hydrogel and a silicone matrix. So the idea is after you print your vascular network in these 3D tissue constructs, you can use a sacrificial ink to actually uh, remove this ink and establish a really complex vascular network that you can use to perfuse nutrients. And so that's what they did. They reported a new biomanufacturing method that requires on sacrificial writing into functional tissue, and they called it SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T. So how'd they do it? They first grew iPSCs in adherent culture and next transferred them into big, you know, large-scale microwave arrays to create a really large volume of embryoid bodies for their SWIFT technique, this sacrificial writing into functional tissues. So after they harvested their EBs, they can actually be used directly as these organ building blocks or differentiated more specifically into an organoid of interest. And you know they focused on cardiac organoids, for example, here. They also mix their organ building blocks with extracellular matrix so that you can basically have this gelatinous mixture of organoids and also matrix that when it's heated up, it's actually able to solidify and have a density that's comparable to what you would find in vivo. But before you heat it up, when it's cold, this slurry that they call it can have enough support for embedded 3D printing of a gelatin ink, which is gonna be your template for actually printing that vascular channel that I talked about. Mm. And after they heat it up, you know, all this solidifies and you can remove the gel gelatinous ink, the gelatin ink. This is after heating it up to 37 degrees. And that's gonna leave behind this network of tubular channels in the tissue construct. And right after actually creating that vascular network, and I thought this is really cool, they plugged it in directly into an external pump and started perfusing in oxygenated media to actually preserve the viability of the cells in the construct. And you can use SWIFT to actually embed vascular channels into a range of different organ building blocks like EBs, like I mentioned, embryoid bodies, cerebral organoids, and beating cardiac spheroids too. So you can print a pretty arbitrary network of vascular uh, structures, and they actually demonstrated that in this paper. They had some pretty neat uh, structures that they were able to print, some helixes, for example, some really interesting structures. And I would definitely recommend checking out the figures here. It's uh, it's kind of a trip. It's it's pretty pretty fun to look at. But of course, really important when it comes to bioink and when it comes to 3D printing is cell viability. You want to make sure that the ink that you're using and the technology that you're developing is not changing cell viability in any way. So to determine the viability of the cells, they manufactured a perfusible embryoid body-based tissue in a perfusion chamber that had circulation of oxygenated media through these vascular channels. 
And importantly, they saw that in their control tissue, it actually developed a necrotic core within 12 hours. And in the tissue that actually had this perfusible channel, it had really you know, good viability over the course of long duration, 12 hours and even days after that. The next thing they wanted to do was to create a true vascular network. And to do that, you print in some HUVEX cells, endothelial cells. Um, and finally, the final thing they did was to demonstrate that this 3D printing of this vascular network, this sacrificial writing into functional tissues, actually improves function. This is something I alluded to at the very beginning. You want to make sure functionally you're having a good effect using whatever technology you're interested in. And so they focused on cardiac organoids and they were able to show that when cardiac organoids actually had this swift 3D printing and they had this vascular network, they actually were able to beat really well and functionally mature over the course of a few weeks. So I think it's really exciting. It's um, I think it's addressing a challenge that is you know still a challenge and when it comes to tissue engineering, the right perfusion and of uh, of nutrients into these tissue engineered constructs. And their approach was to have this sacrificial writing into functional tissues using a, a degradable ink. So can't wait to see where they go with this. I can't wait to see there. It's super cool. I remember, you know, one of my favorite movies is uh, The Fifth Element. I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. But there's that scene where the, what's her name? The Fifth Element, Lilu, gets printed out from like some little scrap of her body, like print her out. Anyone who's old like me, you remember that scene. But I rem even when I was a young man in science, uh, but not fully educated, I remember being kind of skeptical of the idea just conceptually uh, that something could be built, uh, an organism could be built. I've always gone by the kind of maxim that, uh, that organs ultimately are gonna need to be grown as opposed to being built, but when you see something like this, you kind of see how it's almost semantic, right? Like it's a bit of both here. They're grown, but they're also kind of kind of seeded with a, with a overarching. You can see how you might be able to reconcile this idea in a regenerative approach. I'm saying because we're not going to grow a new heart, I think, for people realistically. Um, so how are we going to address regeneration when we need to repair tissue? Well, maybe we can like scaffold the growth in a pre you know prefabricated form format i don't know you're the guy who does all this kind of stuff so you you could be more critical but i still kind of feel like eh, they're making it they're not growing it we'll have to see well you know what i'm actually more optimistic than you are i think we're going to get to the point where we're actually going to be able to grow a whole heart not necessarily in a dish but you know like i alluded to maybe in a pig who knows you know that's I think it's coming. I think it's really coming. But you're kind of right. I think when it comes to you know tissue engineered applications like this, a lot of it has to do with you know one limitation is you're never able to perfectly replicate the architecture of the organ that you're trying to develop, right? Like the heart is complex. You have like multiple structures, multiple blood vessels, multiple chambers, and are you able to perfectly 3D print? that in a dish i don't know i think something like simple is like something like i don't know like a like a bladder or something is something that's more amenable to 3d printing because maybe when it comes to the structure of the organ itself it's maybe not as complicated but maybe i'm biased you're not biased arun you're correct <laughs> don't know about that <laughs>
Well, I'm going to tell you some, some organ that we're not going to need to worry about that with, my friend. And that is with the blood. It's why I love the blood. And I've always said, I know you're talking about growing hearts, like the island, that movie where they grow them. They say they're growing them and it's legit, but really they're growing clones and sacrificing them. Maroon, yeah. We've all mm-hmm. seen that story. Watch out for Absolutely. you, buddy. But um, we're not going to have to worry about that scenario here with the blood because the blood as an organ is really just a cell, okay? And uh, it's not just for regenerative approaches. The blood has been leveraged now to do a lot of things, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in two roundup stories, I think, Arun. But let me start with me. This is a story about cancer. We've all talked about the CAR-T, the adaptive immunotherapy idea. I think we're pretty well versed on that. We see a lot of stories on that, making great headway. But there's a, a, a bit of an older idea, not even older, a contemporary idea that maybe doesn't get enough run. Um, this is uh, the invariant natural killer T cell. Okay, This is a small population of T lymphocytes. They're very highly conserved from mice to humans. Uh, and there's, they have a lot of unique features that make them really attractive for cancer immunotherapy, all right? Three, at least. First, there's really strong evidence, just a correlation, that, um, that these invariant natural killer T cells, I'm going to call them ink T cells, because I can't say that a hundred times. I'm going to call them ink Ts, okay? These, the ink Ts, it's been kind of correlated with tumor surveillance in mice. In humans, as well, if you see... Uh, Patients with solid tumors, there's a decreased frequency of these ink T cells uh, in solid and hematological malignancies. And if you see increased ink T cell numbers, it's associated with a good prognosis. So there's this kind of anecdotal, I guess you'd call it, or, or correlation evidence there. Um, also, uh, the ink T cells, they have a remarkable capacity to target different types of cancer, independent of the antigen or the MHC complex restrictions, you know, the MHC restrictions, um, they can target a lot of different types of cancer. Third, these ink T cells, they can deploy multiple mechanisms to attack the tumor cells, including direct killing, um, as well as uh, immune adjuvant effects, like stimulating the cytotoxic T lymphocytes themselves, all right? So they have all these attributes. It's well-known. So researchers across the world have conducted a bunch of clinical trials trying to utilize these ink T cells to treat different forms of cancer. Uh, And typically, I mean, they take very different forms, but there's been uh, success using, some success using ex vivo expanded patient ink T cells, uh, and they are well-tolerated and safe. Uh, and they have shown encouraging results with anti-tumor immunity in patients with melanoma, with non-cell, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, with head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. So it, they look good, right? But there's a lot of trials that haven't yielded any success, and even the ones that have yielded you know, moderate success, they're limited because they have to either directly stimulate the cells to expand in vivo, which is a real challenge, or they do this ex vivo expansion of the endogenous ink T cells. And this, these cells are rare. They're extremely low frequency in cancer patients in particular, less than 0.1%, as low as 0.001%. And when you stimulate them, they are depleted really quickly. So it's not really a really practical option at this point because the cells are limited. 
So step in Lili Yang at uh, UCLA, you know, famously with David Baltimore. They developed a lot of these therapies for engineering T-cell receptor uh, to get targeting, specific targeting. Um, and Lili here take it, takes it to the next level uh, using this approach to genetically reprogram hematopoietic stem cells. Okay, so the stem cell, which is, you know, theoretically unlimited in its potential, to produce a T cells that have uh, two qualities. One, they're engineered so that they become these ink T cells, one, and two, they're engineered so they have specificity for a certain type of cancer. And long story short, they showed that this worked. This is like a pre preclinical work that I'm sure is going to blow up and become the next cancer therapy du jour in clinical trials because it seems very robust. They showed that they could get long-term generation of these engineered, we're calling them HSC ink T cells in vivo. They used an uh, immunocompromised mouse model, of course, for all of these. Uh, they showed that they closely resembled the endogenous human ink T cells. They could deploy multiple mechanisms to attack tumor cells uh, and were practical. They effectively uh, uh, suppressed the tumor growth in vivo, multiple xenograft xenografted cancers uh, in the mouse model. And importantly, they had no toxicity, no tumorigenicity. Uh, and so all those things together, that's a kind of demonstration of principle there, the feasibility, the safety, and the, the efficacy there the, the, for cancer therapy potential of this. And like I said, uh, I, I, the way things go now, you know, you talk to, like you said, we talked to Alison Moatry and really stuck with me is that whole Zika story where you had a tool that enabled the kind of diagnosis and development of a therapy. I feel like we're, we're not there yet with cell therapies. Of course, the regulatory apparatus has to be much more complex, but I'm waiting to see this in the near term because there's so much power of this immunotherapy and there's so many prongs to the approach. Uh, I feel like we're curing cancer, Arun. We're getting there, I think. You know, I think when it comes to treating leukemias, for example, I think we've made a pretty big dent in in cancer itself and i think we do have definitely a long way to go but yeah everybody's using t-cells for immunotherapy and you know i can't wait to talk about the next paper because that's wow that's that's an incredible application but i think one thing that you have to consider here is scalability right mm. so making enough of these and this is something that they actually you know addressed in this particular paper when i think of scalability i think you know Pluripotent stem cells are powerful because you can scale them up crazy. You can scale them up pretty much indefinitely. And so I wonder where things are right now when it comes to IPS differentiation of CAR T cells. You know, I think there are some folks working on that. Um, and of course, I'm biased because I'm an IPS guy, but perhaps that would be another way to kind of mass produce these things. Yeah, you're right. Also, in terms of practicality, uh, I remember when we talked with Jennifer Adair, she made it clear that when you're when you're engineering and doing like targeting lentiviral or whatever of of of, of blood cells, like yes, it's it works in these high level labs. Whether or not, like you said, you can scale it, whether or not you can apply it in every place where it's desperately needed, is is certainly a limitation. So you're right on that. But um, like you said, people are using T-cells for everything, right? Absolutely. And oh man, I've been wanting to talk about this next paper for a while now. We had a feeling that it was going to drop, you know, sometime soon. But 
it dropped i think what yesterday or the day before and it's really taken you know multiple fields by storm this is this is really something so on the topic of car t cells and immunotherapy the title of this paper is targeting cardiac fibrosis with engineered t cells that's it that's the title and it's a it's a nature letter it's coming from the group of john epstein who's a pretty well-known cardiac biologist over at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And other folks on the paper are, you know, world-renowned expert in immunotherapies, such as uh, Carl June, for example. And the premise is pretty simple. Basically, they're using CAR T-cells immunotherapy to target fibrosis in the heart, which is, you know, an issue when it comes to myocardial infarctions or heart attacks for example you have scarring of the heart that happens after a heart attack due to the function of these cardiac fibroblasts and the approach was you know we're just going to use t-cells to target the the fibroblasts and the fibrosis is going to go away so easier said than done right so we know that quiescent fibroblasts are an important component of the structure of the myocardium the muscle cell layer of the heart and activated fibroblasts induced by injury or disease can negatively affect the stiffness of the myocardium, this, you know, muscular layer of the heart. And it can even signal to the cardiomyocytes, the contracting muscle cells of the heart, um, to negatively influence their, their function. And there aren't really any therapies that directly target the excessive fibrosis that happens in, say, myocardial infarction, even though there is a huge burden of this disease across, you know, the entire world. And there are not too many interventions that have been able to show improved cardiac function and clinical outcomes in patients with impaired, you know, cardiac compliance and also relaxation. And this can ultimately lead to heart failure, which is, of course, something that's very, you know, very severe, very serious. And, you know, a lot of times you have to address that using transplantation, for example. There have been some studies in the past that focused on genetic ablation of cardiac fibroblasts, you know, after hypertension or ischemic injury, so injury where you have loss of oxygenation, for example. And it's been, you know, it's done a decent job, but so that, that gives us some preliminary evidence that this might work, this approach of using CAR T cells for targeting fibroblasts, it, it, it might actually work when it comes to reducing fibrosis. And of course, as we talked about, you know, you have CAR T cells that are being used for everything. They're super important and super effective in treating various types of leukemias, for example. And, you know, they've been approved by the FDA to, to do that. So the reasoning was simple. We're going to use CAR T cells to target the heart, to target fibrosis in the heart. So the first thing that they did was to generate mice that overexpressed a, a unique antigen called ovalbumin peptide or OVA and this is not normally found in the fibroblast in the cardiac fibroblast so this is an overexpression of OVA specifically uh, under the uh, the driver of periostin which is a fibroblast specific driver so they overexpressed this OVA and then after that they induced injury and fibrosis into the hearts of mice using angiotensin 2 and phenylephrine and it's been shown that when you, you know, treat mice with uh, angiotensin II and phenylephrine, it's able to cause cardiac fibrosis. So they selectively generated uh, CD8 positive T cells that can specifically target this OVA antigen, which is again only expressed on the cardiac fibroblast. And it worked. So they're able to show that 
widespread there was widespread cardiac fibrosis in the control mice but in the mice that had this overexpressing OVA in the cardiac fibroblasts and they actually were treated with these OVA targeting T cells there was a huge reduction in in fibrosis so you know this is the first set of experiments that shows that this might actually be be working the next thing they did was to focus on endogenous proteins that are found in cardiac fibroblasts, right? Because the hope is if you want to turn this into a therapy, you can't just overexpress an antigen in someone's fibroblast, right? That's like, that's, you can't do that. That's, that's not possible. It's just, that's genetic manipulation, right? And that's something that's more specific for an in vitro or an in vivo model system. So the next thing they did was actually find a, a gene called FAP that was highly expressed in the fibroblasts uh, that are in the myocardium of patients with either hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy, these really severe injuries, uh, these severe diseases of the heart. And it's a cell surface glycoprotein. So, so this FAP is highly expressed in fibrosis, in, in cardiac fibroblasts that are you know, activated and undergoing fibrosis. So this was their target, and they generated a, uh, they went back to their angiotensin 2PE model, and they generated CAR T cells that were specifically targeting this FAP protein on endogenous fibroblasts. And once again, once again, it had the same effect. You're able to reduce fibrosis at one to two weeks after uh, angiotensin 2PE initiation and after treating with these FAP CAR T cells. And also importantly, they're able to do some preliminary safety studies that were showing that this is specific. It's specific to the fibroblasts. You know, the CAR T cells aren't really necessarily targeting other parts of the body that they're not supposed to be targeting. So it's, I think this is incredible. I think this is showing that CAR T has so many other applications outside of just the cancer space. You might be able to target really whatever cell type you're interested in, in whatever disease model you're interested in. Like, for example, in the fibroblast in this example, uh, it's it's an immunorevolution. That's what they call it, right? An immunorevolution. Immunotherapy is being used for everything. And there's so many applications that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, this is so twisted in a, in a great way. Because I'm just envisioning now a future where you just infuse early on this little whatever surveillance, some kind of T-cell surveillance. With this story and the previous story, I can envision you infuse like a stem cell with that surveillance so it gives you a lifelong self-renewing protection against XYZ. I mean, it seems like cheating a little bit, but it's, it's so realizable in the short term. Like you said, with the safety stuff, my first question would be like, oh, well, you got to overexpress the albumin. It's not physiological. Boom, they do the FAP. Oh, well, you got to watch out what it's doing at peripheral sites. They show that too. So, I mean, what's left? I feel like this is almost ready for prime time. Yeah, I know. I think it's, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, there's actually a Twitter account that's at just in mice, right? Uh, so, you know, we got to get around that, right? You know, this is able to, I think we, like you said, you know, before we've cured cancer in mice, we've done so much cool stuff in mice, right? But look, when you make that jump to the higher vertebrates, and I like to think that we are higher vertebrates, <laughs> maybe things aren't, you know, as easy. Maybe things don't, you know, there's, there's plenty of hurdles that we haven't really thought of. So I think it's, there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done before this is like every day treatment for cardiac fibrosis but you know the preliminary data is really exciting 
My wife's in line for the car tea for wrinkles. I'll tell you that much. But before we get to all that newfangled stuff in the interview with Pekka, where we're going to talk about aging, period, mostly in the intestinal stem cells, but aging, you know, generally, we have a message from Stem Cell Technologies. Are you looking for more information on organoids? After today's show, you're probably getting into the oids if you aren't already. You should download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques. Developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing, this essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered. You can download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash Organoid ebook. Get online and get it. All right, everybody. This week on the Stem Cell Podcast, we have our interview segment with Dr. Pekka Katiisto. Dr. Katiisto is currently at the University of Helsinki and also at the Karolinska Institute. He is an associate professor at the Helsinki Institute of Life Science at the University of Helsinki and director at the Center for Excellence in Stem Cell Metabolism at the University of Helsinki. And he's an associate professor in the Department of Biosciences and Nutrition at the Karolinska Institute. Dr. Katiisto's lab studies the stem cell intrinsic and extrinsic mechanisms altering tissue renewal capacity and how such mechanisms ultimately result in the functional decline that we recognize as aging. The mechanisms that they study include asymmetric cell division, cellular metabolism and cell fate, and the stem cell niche. And he's also active on Twitter at Pekka Katiisto and at Katiisto Lab. So welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast, Dr. Katiisto. Thank you so much. Happy to participate. And so why don't we jump right into it? So why don't we give our listeners a little overview of what your lab is currently working on in your own words? Well, um, I think you covered it very well. Uh, so we're interested in, in aging in broad terms. Uh, the lab is a little bit split in, in two ways, so that um, half of the laboratories may be studying stem cell extrinsic mechanisms of aging, and the other one is looking into the stem cells themselves and what happens there. And uh, recently, we've been getting more and more involved with, uh, with cellular metabolism, uh, maybe that's something we can get back to a little bit later on, but this is uh, coming uh, from our findings recently regarding asymmetric cell division. But on the other hand, we have quite a bit of expertise in understanding what the cell-cell communication is like in the, in the one tissue that we study a lot, which is the intestine, and, and there we are really focusing maybe on the, on the niche interactions more. But uh, all that happens in the context of aging in a very broad way. We, we are interested in, in the overall tissue renewal rate, how that reflects to regeneration of tissues, how diseases come about, about during aging, and so forth. Yeah, Pekka, uh, one of the recurrent themes of the work is this progressive decline in stem cell function as we age. And intuitively, of course, we understand that that's bad, right? Things get old, they get worse, unless you're one. Uh, but could you explain specifically how that 
decline manifests in the intestine in people? Like, what does it mean to have a progressive decline in stem cell function in our intestines? What's that? What does that do to us, and how does that manifest? Well, uh, I, I hear that you, like so many, are not very worried about getting a wrinkly intestine, for example, <laughs> or, or, or something like that. So that's true. I mean, uh, intestine is not the model to look into when, when you are... Uh, uh, if you want to approach your uh, funding agency saying that I want to study aging and intestine is a big thing, that's that's something that you need to really explain. Now, there's actually quite a bit of uh, research done on the intestinal function. The, uh, we, we all understand that intestine has one very big function, which is to absorb nutrients. So on that part, there's quite a bit of studies uh, done to uh, to probe on the on how the absorptive function of nutrients is is reducing during the aging, but it's it's a little bit controversial. So those uh, differences are not so big necessarily. However, what does happen is, uh, and this is partly looked into by ourselves, that that the capacity of the intestinal epithelium to just renew and repair if there are any problems, that seems to be going down. And now, since intestine is the holder for the largest amount of microbiota that we have, for example, the risks of the monolayer, which is keeping the microbiota separate from the rest of the body, if that is compromised during the aging like it is, uh, that starts to make sense that why uh, intestine is maybe a relatively good place to study aging-related problems, understanding that it's not necessarily something that people see and consider in their everyday life, but but it actually does play a big role. Another reason is that intestine is the fastest renewing organ that we have. So so there seems to be a lot of spare capacity in in the renewal rate uh, in our everyday normal life, at least in the normal. Uh, setting that we in the Western world experience, which means that that uh, small changes that may occur during the aging don't necessarily compromise the individual's um, well-being that much. But there's this bigger window to then catch uh, anything changing, any, any reduction in the renewal rates, because those patients don't necessarily immediately fall dead. Instead, mm-hmm. there is this this extra capacity that can be withering away without much of an um, initial symptom. And therefore, for the sake of studying actual uh, stem cell phenotypes related to aging, intestine is actually a pretty good place to look into. Mm. So Dr. Katiisto, you had alluded to this a little bit, but we, you know, since the intestine is such a unique organ, it's got so many different functions, I think there are multiple ways that you can actually influence the function of the gut, either through direct targeting via drugs, as you sort of demonstrated in your most recent paper, or potentially even changing what you eat and consequently the state of your microbiome. So on that note, um, could you talk a little bit about the studies that are actually investigating the role of the microbiome on intestinal stem cell aging? Or what is really the the best thing that we can do to overall to improve our overall intestinal stem cell function? Going back to even uh, more widely considering what what is good to uh, good to slow down aging, CR so calorie restriction is still a very good way to. Uh, uh, I would still call it the the best way that we we really and a safe way to uh, alter the rate of aging, if you will. 
uh, and and therefore of course increase the what we, what is referred to as as health span rather than just the lifespan and uh, calorie restriction of course comes in many formats we've done some studies on it everybody has their favorite way of doing it um, and and even though we originally thought that they don't necessarily mean so uh, or have so much of an effect on the microbiota I guess it's fair to say in the light of the recent uh, studies that that any dietary restrictions or dietary modifications will have a um, microbiota axis to the to the uh, effects as well uh, at least if you're looking into the intestinal effects here now of course there's a, a whole host of studies where the whole microbiota has been changed or or um, transplanted and and those have uh, various various ways of uh, of changing the intestinal uh, balance uh, we don't do any of that what we do is is exactly the simplest way of doing dietary uh, changes which is by reducing food we have the food basically the steady the, st the food is always the same and we either give it at libitum so at will or then uh, we start restricting it and and the interesting avenues that we are taking, I think interesting, are that um, food availability at various time points of the day, for example, seems to be um, a, 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 a big factor. So, so traditionally, of course, calorie restriction is, is and mouse studies. Mice are uh, nocturnal. They like to eat at night time. So traditionally, of course, what, what the study had, uh, plan has been is, uh, is to... Uh, reduce the food availability at the time when the mice are uh, hungry and when they want to uh, forage for food in the nighttime. But if the food is available in the daytime, that means that then they're just gonna kind of fill it up in the daytime and, and so forth. It's hard to do this, but but when we go and start moving the, the, uh, the restriction time around the clock, uh, one starts to, for example, see these very quick effects on the on the circadian biology of the intestine and that, that's something that we are quite interested looking into now microbiome uh, as a part of these studies comes with it but we we don't really have much to say yet about that uh, we, we think there's going to be changes but uh, but let's wait and see what the what the role of it is on the on the effects uh, but but it's not only food amounts, it's not only the type of food, but it's also the timing of the food that seems to be very important for the for the intestinal stem cell system. Now, how and and why does it happen? Well, that's another story. Uh, I I already said that we're interested in the niche interactions, and and basically I can I can just say that yes, niche does play a big role in, in all of these studies in the lab and, and seems to also be uh, seems to also have a guiding role when it comes to for example this the circadian uh, biology to some extent yeah this niche idea uh, and the the microbiome I mean it's it's interesting to me because it seems like you're up against it in terms of you, you alluded to the how complicated it is to model these things and take into consideration the habits of the mouse and what we're really talking about here is the onslaught on our intestinal stem cells in the face of the Western diet. I mean, isn't that the subtext? So what, how do you like approach that as a question, given the distance between the diet that we have and the diet of a mouse, and then also as an intermediary, this, this uh, um, 
the microbiome. Like, I guess, so there's two questions. What are the challenges modeling that? And also in terms of the microbiome, what's the diversity of microbiome? Are there like generally just two types, a healthy and an aberrant? Or, cause when I think of it, it's a meta thing, right? There could be all types, you know, everybody's microbiome is its own fingerprint. So what are the challenges with trying to extrapolate you know, data from these classic experimental systems and overlay it on the, the you know, the, the problem that we're facing in, in humans. I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the uh, complexity of the microbiome studies. And that's exactly that, uh, that even in the mouse studies, even at the best of uh, facilities, uh, the microbiome from, from a cage to another of the animals is going to be different. So, so normalizing that, we are, we are, if far from uh, what we used to think in, in ways of background on mice and so forth, uh, this is much more uh, difficult to, uh, to normalize for or take into account to the fullest when it comes to microbiome. I'm not an expert on microbiome. That's not uh, really the thing that we study in the lab that much. But it, it, what uh, is apparent by studies from others is that, that if you, for example, uh, go and transplant um, fecal matter and basically give the mi microbiome of another mouse to, an, uh, to another one, or, or this happens, of course, in human patients now uh, for various reasons, uh, there is uh, somewhat of a, uh, of a carryover of the transplanted uh, microbiome, but there's also a remodeling of the microbiome. So it's, a, it's always a combination of the, of the habits of the uh, subject that receives uh, uh, this uh, microbiome transplant, but also their diet and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, coming to the Western diet uh, aspect of it, now uh, that seems to have an impact on, on uh, microbiome in the way that it, it, it usually makes it simpler. Uh, and, and overall, simple is not good when it comes to micro, and that's pretty much the level that I understand it. I'm not a microbiologist, hmm. so to me, these phyla mean very little. When I hear and see these trees of all kinds of uh, yeah. bacteria, I kind of say, like, that's neat, that's very colorful, but I don't know what it means. So, so that's one reason we don't do these studies. Um, well, but, what, just but, to interject, sorry, what does it mean for the intestinal stem cells? Just basically, right. yes, is it good? It's bad for them? They suffer new more? Yeah. I have to I have to guess because we, we don't know for sure but but uh, my take on it is that having that that very mm, uh, colorful <laughs> microbiome will mean uh, that there are simply more metabolites uh, that uh, types of metabolites running around in the intestine they are mainly absorbed by the absorptive epithelium, not by the stem cells, which are kind of nicely tucked away, as you may know, to the bottoms of the crypts and, and hardly are exposed to the microbiome at all. So they're really shielded from all of this, but still, I mean, uh, small metabolites reach them quite easily. And that's that's kind of getting to the side of things that we are interested in. What do the microbiota produce and how that might be uh, changing the way that the uh, stem cells experience food, how long is, is a certain metabolite around because of various uh, feeding rhythms or feeding uh, substance, uh, or food substance, uh, substances. So, so I think it's this uh, metabolic crosstalk between the two compartments rather than the, than the, the really, um, uh, the, uh, the, the plethora of bacteria that you have that 
I don't, I don't think that's necessarily per se so important. It must be something that is and that is either absorbed by the epithelium and, and circulated via the systemic, uh, uh, via the whole uh, systemic blood flow back to the stem cells, or then they actually see these metabolites directly. And, and uh, we have some ideas on, on what those metabolites that they see directly might be. So Dr. Katsuvista, kind of jumping right into that, shifting away from the microbiome more towards the intestinal stem cell niche, you actually had a recent paper that came out in Nature just in July that was able to uh, demonstrate that the Wnt inhibitor notum is upregulated during the aging process. And I guess I have a couple of questions in, uh, in regard to that. So I wonder if that's still the case during examples of accelerated aging, and do you think there is any value to having an extended, perhaps chronic inhibition of Wnt inhib inhibition or Wnt activation in the gut to counteract these aging phenotypes? So, so why don't we dive into to your paper a little bit? Absolutely. The, 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 the inhibitor that we found not to be expressed in the old intestine was, was expressed by not the stem cells, but the next door neighbor cells, the panet cells. And uh, panet cells are known to produce multiple factors. They produce factors that are supporting the stem cells, giving them, uh, if you will, the gas pedal for uh, uh, proliferation. But this uh, factor that we found is the opposite. It's uh, inactivating the well-known wind signals that are maintaining both the proliferation and stemness in the stem cells. Uh, Notum is, is basically an uh, opposite to, to porcupine, who is necessary for, for the secretion of wind lichens in the form that they are actively then uh, or takes take active uh, uh, signaling roles in the stem cells uh, with with their receptors, but notum can inactivate those lichens when they have been secreted to the extracellular space, where it's also secreted to, and this results in in a reduction of the uh, local uh, around the panet cells uh, a niche of of wind lichens because it doesn't matter how much wind lichens you pump there the the uh, the notum secreted by all panet cells will inactivate those. This will then, in other, uh, it will result eventually in, in reduction of the of the stemness in the in the in the stem cells, of course. So, uh, since notum is is an inhibitor of winds and winds are so necessary, obvious question is: Can we actually make the old intestine now more regenerative by by maybe inhibiting notum? And that's exactly what we do in the paper. Uh, we were very happy. To, uh, and this is actually a, a little side note that I want to make uh, make here that usually sending people out to present posters is not so useful at this time. It was fantastic because the first author, Nalle, went and presented this poster and he had a guy from uh, Ben Cravat's laboratory coming uh, to him and say like, hey, that's an interesting molecule, this notum you're working on. We have an inhibitor for it. So, mm. so we, uh, we were very lucky to hook up with Ben Cravat's laboratory um, uh, and got to use their, their novel inhibitor for notum, which is called APC99. I, I still don't really quite know the, the name of uh, where the name comes from. Uh, however, this is this is one way we, that we uh, we uh, target notum in the in the paper, and uh, sure enough, by reducing notum activity with this inhibitor, 
we can restore the wind activity and, and the regeneration. And, and uh, this is not going to be the only way to do this, probably because simply by administering extra um, winds into the into the um, um, we can circumvent the effects of uh, notum by just uh, um, exogenous wind uh, uh, in the organic cultures, for example. So, so um, you you really just have to find the right balance with winds, and uh, and therefore we are now carefully thinking what the what the next studies really are, because of course uh, when you dealing with intestine and wind balances, fine, regeneration and renewal is one side of the coin, but uh, but cancer and, and hyperproliferation are, are lurking around the corner immediately, and, and therefore we are very keenly now looking into strategies to actually study notum and wind balance in, in these various states. And so as a technical question, how specific is NOTAM as a wind inhibitor. Of course, there are a number of other wind inhibitors out there, such as these IWP compounds, for example. I actually use them as part of my cardiac differentiation protocol, my IPS cardiomyocyte differentiation protocol. So I'm wondering, should I shift over to, to using, for example, NOTAM as a, as a wind inhibitor? Yeah, I, the jury's out still on on the wind lichen specificity to to some degree. There, there starts to be now some reports on, on uh, on Notum showing some specificity, and uh, we have our own endeavors on that front. So, and and uh, <laughs> I don't want to go and <laughs> and, and uh, argue before we are stronger on on our views. But uh, but I, I think it's going to be a very complex uh, question now. Just in the niche of the intestinal stem cells, there are multiple different uh, wind lichens being produced, either by panet cells themselves, by the by the myofibroblasts, which are hugging the epithelium from the from the stromal side, and and we are mainly now looking into notum either taking action mainly on the epithelially produced or the stromally produced winds. Uh, that's that's one avenue that we are we are looking into, um, and and it's going to be somewhat like and specific, uh, and and uh, uh, I think and and. Uh, so therefore, to take it as a as a general wind inhibitor per se is maybe not the wisest thing. So you have to look closely into your system and think what the winds are that you want to inhibit. But but it it certainly is also um, a a molecule in the intestine that is produced in in such a way that that it 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 basically um, doesn't doesn't just exogenous uh, notum given to organoid cultures for example coming to this uh, whole ready system where where most of the wind lichens and and are responding for example are given in the media from the from the uh, strong uh, from, sorry from the basal side notum has very little effect there so it, it seems to be in the intestine really taking effect uh, in the organoid setting on those ligands that are produced by the next door uh, panet cells and are basically right there, easy to inactivate whenever a panet cell is producing notum uh, next to them. Yeah, you, you talked about how you have to really approach this in a delicate way because, of course, wind is ubiquitous in its function and its presence throughout many organ systems, um, most notably in, in the intestine. But there's another question, right, which is that this progressive loss or downregulation of notum with aging, is that a degenerative thing or a protective thing? Because you also have your late, you know, proliferations of these stem cells. Is there a potential that you get this kind of escape 
um, oncogenesis. If you don't downregulate the stem cell pool late in life because they've replicated so many times that there's like DNA instability, is that is that something that you worry about in terms of in an aging system restoring self-renewal in the stem cells? Or are they protected from that kind of DNA drift and instability? Uh, well, to answer it uh, in, in, a, uh, in a quick way, uh, I think it's an interesting point to look into whether notum indeed is a, let's say, tumor suppressive uh, measure or the opposite, because notum, after all, is a, a wind target. So, so it forms a negative feedback loop with, with wind uh, signaling. And therefore, um, too much of wind in the niche will result in, in expression of notum, which will then be a thermostat for uh, for the right dose of, of wind lichens in there. However, of course, we all know that the majority of cancers uh, of the of, of the bowel are starting from APC mutations, which crazily activate wind light uh, signaling. And therefore, it's an interesting thing to look into now in the laboratory. What what does it really mean in terms of notum? Notum seems to be expressed a lot in in uh, in many uh, wind activated. Uh, malignancies and and we're now figuring out whether it's actually helping in the in the um, tumor genesis or is it as you were suggesting that the expression of notum over the years towards the latter days of your life might be a tumor suppressive way of keeping slowly reducing the the local wind uh, availability and therefore the the proliferation in the intestine mm. so we kind of try to tap onto both um, possibilities there and and juries out but uh, but uh, that's exactly along the lines that we are looking into. Going back to this ABC99 compound that you identified that was able to rejuvenate intestinal stem cells by inhibiting NOTAM, and I think it's pretty powerful for having that particular function. Is there any interest in moving this particular compound forward for translational applications in the gut or elsewhere? Yes, and, and you should talk to, uh, uh, to Ben Kravat about this a little bit more. Uh, but of course, uh, uh, the good good thing here is that um, it's the gut, so it's, so you could probably possibly uh, target the the nodum quite easily uh, orally, even uh, with something that uh, that brings the APC99 into the intestine. And and as as we show that uh, that the uh, uh, the chemoprotective uh, role of of nodum in the in the old animals could could be quite quite powerful, at least in, in mouse studies, that's that's an avenue that we are keenly now taking forward in the in the lab and in, in Helsinki, uh, trying to look for ways and, and actually talking about the, the study uh, design a little bit, that what, what, is it, what is it really that we want to do with, uh, with clinicians? I'm a, I'm a basic biologist myself, so, so I, I, uh, I lean on broader shoulders here a little bit. But that's, that's absolutely what we are interested to see, uh, the, the, the underlying idea, of course, is that old um, old patients uh, take a heavy hit from many chemo regimens, for example, and and the side effects on their gut are quite severe, much more so than in in younger um, patients, even if you're not targeting the gut for for any reason, and and therefore to protect the gut under under such setting would maybe open the therapeutic window a little bit wider for old uh, patients, and that's that's the goal here. 
So, yeah, I mean, I know this is a, it's a niche thing, uh, which makes me think that it's probably not likely, but is there any possibility, you know, working in pluripotent stem cells, a big question is whether or not we can, act, you know, apply these cells to uh, studying disease in adults because they're, you know, pluripotent stem cells, fetal, immature. Uh, so yeah, notum, it's a niche factor, but is there any insight from the study that might be exploited to try and um, mature fetal or, or pluripotent stem cell derivatives to a more adult state? Or is, you know, is that something you've thought about? Not really. In, in our hands, it's a strikingly panacell-specific expression pattern in the intestine. And, and of course, we, we've looked where else notum is expressed. And it, even if you look at the whole, whole, whole body throughout, there, there seems to be very uh, few cells in an adult body that, that uh, maintain um, notum expression normally. There, there are hotspots here and there, but not, not so many. But we haven't really looked so much into the developmental phases where I believe that this might be much more relevant. Of course, if you want to model disease with IPS cells, you, you kind of are quite often looking into those early early stages anyway. So, so maybe there's a window for it, but, but uh, I haven't really mm, uh, thought of, of any, any application on that. It was a, it was a stretch anyway. It's no 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 shortfall on your thinking process and brainstorming. It was it was a real lark on my part. So heading back to that 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 kind of a question that Arun was alluding to about the the therapeutic applications and commercialization, is this something you think that could I mean maybe not ready for prime time tomorrow, but is this a drug that you think could have immediate relevance in the human population? Um, I, I hope so, and, and the, the next generation uh, versions of, of ABC99 that, that uh, the Cravat lab is, and, and they are looking for uh, looking into are probably going to be much more applicable. But that this really isn't my my uh, thing to say too much because the molecule is not ours in any way. So so it's uh, it's uh, that's fair. Developed in a different laboratory. So. Maybe you can speak though to the you know I think of. Uh... Helsinki, Finland, and I think of their fantastic healthcare apparatus and all the entitlements that the population gets, and I'm very envious and jealous. It makes me think that as a community, like you, I mean, I'm trying to get you to say you're, you're going to make some money off of this, and it seems like you're much more concerned about the science, which I respect and admire. But is there a a real impetus for commercialization of your findings, more or less. You're familiar with the U.S., where it seems like everything's driven by capitalism and IP, and let's start a company. What's the energy like in Finland and at the Karolinska, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the whole push for uh, you know intellectual property protections and commercialization and money, money, money? Yeah, it's it's a very different setting. I mean, we, we're learning. We're we're, we're definitely. Uh, Trying to catch up a little bit on on um, uh, commercialization of, of of our findings and the tech transfer offices of both institutes that I work in here are, are kind of learning their way pretty pretty quickly because uh, I guess everybody has realized that that there's also a lot of revenue that could go towards future science and not not only thinking that it's uh, it's money 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 for for somebody but rather 
it's actually uh, maybe the profits could be uh, dealt with in, in a way that, that actually aids this, uh, the science and the funding in, in the Nordic countries. So, so there's fantastic examples of that actually happening really well. I mean, uh, I don't know, if you think of something like Novo Nordisk, which is a, f- a big company making much of the insulin that people need more and more, that they have a great system of, of uh, uh, infusing a lot of... Uh, lot of money into the Nordic uh, science, especially into into Denmark, of course. So, so there's great examples of that happening. Now, when it comes to how aggressive they are in the institutes about uh, commercializing uh, our findings, we are not there at all on the same level. I, I did my PhD in, uh, sorry, in my postdoc training in, in Boston. So uh, uh, I, I uh, got a little bit of a feel of, of how it is, but it was at the same time done in a very nice way that it was somewhat effortless for somebody to publish a paper from there. It was just a given that, that a invention disclosure is put forward from almost everything just to make sure that if there's something, but, but here it's a little bit, it's on you, you have to do it. Uh, there's no very little help. So, so I think there's a big difference. But as I said, we're, we're catching up and, and uh, hopefully it's going to be steered towards and the, the returns are going to be steered towards uh, more science because uh, uh, Nordic countries are a good place to do science already, but more funding would be good. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the Karolinska, and we know that is, of course, an amazing place to, to do science, but uh, it has kind of another claim to fame as well. It's uh, it's famous Uh-oh. for the Nobel Assembly Uh-oh. that <laughs> awards you know the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. So I I think you knew we were going to get to this question. Of course, I don't know if you actually served on the committee, but do you think uh, you can tell us about the environment and kind of what it's like um, when the prizes are are being handed out? Because I guess uh, they're coming out pretty soon. So, uh, no, I'm not in the committee, uh, so, but I, I am willing to take all the bribes possible anyway. No, no. Um, so, you know, it's done in a very nice, they, they're very good up, good about it because they've done it so long. So, so and it's basically a thing that is not mentioned in Karolinska. Uh, it's, it's a very, very, um, uh, Sweden is a relatively formal country, so so when they they say like okay, let's not discuss discuss about this, there's no discussion. So um, uh, I, I find it uh, fascinating to uh, to know many of the people who are who are very much in in the 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 circle who who is uh, making some of the big decisions there. Uh, and uh, how how non-existing this this whole price thing is when you are actually in in Karolinska. Nobody talks about it. It's, it's like a re- unwritten rule that you don't talk about it. There's no mentioning of it. So it's a little bit weird for me to come to a podcast and start talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, as I said, they, they, they do it in a very nice way. And, and of course, when the actual uh, uh, the the actual event takes place and, and, and the announcement is made, yes, of course, there's a lot of excitement. It's a, it's a, it's a fun environment to be part of and, and, and hear the little a little uh, uh, excitement here and there in various forms and, and uh, uh, and of course uh, it also reflects in a very positive way to what kind of speakers we can uh, attract to uh, seminars in, in uh, uh, Karolinska for example. So so it really serves the community 
uh, a lot. And and uh, Huawei Keating, of course, gives a lot of prestige for the whole place. But but at the same time, I think the the real benefit is in everyday lab life there that the students and postdocs have access to excellent present uh, um, seminars all the time because. Uh, we have these returning uh, laureates coming back for, for their uh, presentations and, and almost everybody visits Karolinska. When you invite them for a seminar, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds, of course, they get invited, they come. It's all, it sounds like also there's a, there's a mystique there. The first rule of the Nobel Committee, you don't talk about the Nobel Committee. <laughs> I'm afraid you're going to be sleeping with the fishes after this interview, my friend. But, you know, there's another thing. Arun has educated me since he's joined the show. You know, he's an active Twitter user. I'm looking at you. You're kind of my contemporary. We're a similar age, um, which is degenerating. We're about that at that point. But you're really active on Twitter. How did you get there? And I'm in the wind. Arun is he's the one educating. How has Twitter helped you professionally? How, how have you used it? Um, do you use it to connect with scientists? Do you think the interaction, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of betraying my bias here, but I, I'm an ingenue. But are they superficial interactions or do you establish meaningful relationships using Twitter? That's what I'm struggling with. I want to be an, an adopter, but I need a reason. Pekka, convince me. Um, I, I find it very useful. Um, there's basically two accounts. So the one that is my personal account, and then there's a lab account. And, and those have a little bit of a different uh, purpose. Uh, the, the lab account is more your, your typical um, uh, bulletin board for, look at that, there's interesting stuff. So that's, that's uh, I mean, it's just a way to, um, we, we're tucked away far away from many hotspots in, in, uh, in the world. So it's good to have, have this kind of a means to, to let people know what you're working on and so forth. Now, would you, uh, you don't, didn't say this, but I, I expect that you mainly were interested in why do I do this uh, personal account? And I guess that's a better question. <laughs> um, uh, it, it kind of I asked, I went on to that because so many other scientists did, and it was just that I was just a follower, not a leader on this. Uh, I just did it because other people did it. But what I then found was that actually when I started uh, started picking up papers from there, for example, that was a very surprising uh, way of keeping up to date on on research, which is just close to my interests. So they're, they're, it's, you're basically following uh, like-minded people uh, who, who will find similar things interesting to yourself, and they will post uh, studies that you then go on and, and follow from there. So that's one avenue there. But on the other hand, uh, it's also not a bad idea to, to let people know a little bit, uh, you know, scientists are in a, in a certain uh, reputation, at least in, uh, have a certain reputation, at least in, in here in the, in, in the Scandinavian Nordic countries of being uh, introverts and, and not really uh, easy to approach and so forth. So, so I think it's, there's almost like a, a little bit of a duty that is on me and therefore on you that you're failing, my friend. You have to get on this. You let them know what a charming, uh, outspoken uh, guy you are. I, I'm joking, of course, but the fact is that, that that's that's part of it, that I feel that it's almost uh, 
uh, we're doing just a service to the uh, science community by by making it a little bit easier to approach. And there's there's that side too. You can even put goofy stuff on there. Uh, it's not very serious on my personal Twitter account, as you may have noticed if you if you had an account. <laughs> So, Dr. Katiusto, you know, I think we can work together to to bring Dalen on board, and maybe we can get a Nobel Prize for that. I don't know. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we deserve a Nobel Prize the way I'm sitting right here. Although you have me halfway there, Pekka. I'm on board. I'm on board in principle. I just don't know if I have the attention span or the or the bandwidth. <laughs> Very good. So yeah, I think uh, now that we've you know mined your mind for the uh, all the, the nuggets and science, I think we're going to go on a little bit peripheral personal note, if you don't mind. Uh, first, I'll start by asking what your most memorable or greatest science revelation surprise was, or the converse, if you had a tremendous disappointment that you want to depress us all with. Either one will do. Please share. Uh, I. I... This is kind of easy, uh, but since we didn't talk about that work, it takes a little bit of, uh, of an intro to this. So, so I was doing my postdoc, as I said, in Boston, and this was in David Sabatini's lab in Whitehead, where uh, he, um, he was uh, very generous about giving me a lot of freedom to uh, explore new ideas. And, and, uh, and, and sure enough, uh, we came up with a, with a project that was uh, looking into asymmetric cell division in a way that that was not necessarily a, a sure bet. So, so uh, we decided to tag proteins in a way that we can tell that they are either either chronologically old or young, and then see what happens to them in the in the division of cells. And and uh, if you say what is it, what is the what is the real like the one time when you go and say aha, it was it was simply that that. Uh, at uh, one one time on the on the microscope that that uh, we we went kind of after all kinds of bits and pieces of cells subcellular components of every nature and and what, what eventually uh, I I saw on a, on a not such a great microscope that was available to me at the time very late but uh, that these uh, mammary cells which which have some stem cell capabilities uh, that we were growing. Divided so that the old mitochondria went to one daughter and, and the younger ones went to the other one, and uh, it was it was basically you can tell which one is a more uh, stem-like afterwards just simply because of their uh, because of their um, um, morphology and uh, and and it was it was so that the young ones went to the went to the likely to be more stem-like so so that was a little bit of a little bit of a moment when when i felt that okay now i know something that others don't this is nice uh, so i i i i, I <laughs> held that dear that feeling i oh, you... it still carries me a little further it's just like okay this was a little bit of a stretch of a thing and now now it seems to be true of course it was still like five years on from there until the publication came out but but uh, so it was a long fight but but a, but a very very uh, important memory to feel like how it felt yeah, you got to hang on to those because there's so many of the other, right? And it's funny, every time I, I hear about anyone's aha moment, it's it's something that they they kind of knew, was they believed it was going to happen, and yep. they staked a lot of resources on it, and yet they're still shocked and, and kind of don't believe when it actually works. So it's the common denominator of that. You know it's true, but you can't believe it when you see it. Um, fill in the blanks. Arun, you want to set it off? Yeah, let's do it. So the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now, in your opinion, is what? 
I, I'm fascinated by by how the cellular communities, let's call them the niche and the stem cells in it. I mean, how on earth do they act so well together to to match the needs of the tissue? I mean, it, it's still just amazing to me. And this is this is the this is the one thing that is very hard to approach um, experimentally, and that's why I think it's the next hot thing is, is to really understand the bigger whole, not just one one cell at a time. Uh, we do a lot of single cell sequencing and start to have a little bit of uh, info from there, but but still functionally, uh, how on earth this, uh, these communities come together to fulfill the function? In the case of intestine, for example, I mean, we, we know what the functions are, but, but it's so simple. A couple of cells on the bottom of the crypt and, and how, did they, how do they really uh, co-conspire the uh, whole thing together so well? Because there's, 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 there's certain room for individualistic behavior there, but quite little. So, so how do they do it? I think that's the biggest thing that, that we are going into, at least in the adult stem cell field, to understand the, uh, like uh, these, uh, um, these units at the time, not a single cell at the time necessarily. The next wave, we've all been talking for two decades about stem cells, and the next wave is going to be the niche cells. I'm ready for that. It's, I think uh, it's going to be a tougher problem, like you, you said. Next, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... All right, my wife. Aww. It is my wife. Aww. Look, I, 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 I have a lab in Helsinki and in Karolinska, <laughs> uh, and I have a kid and a wife. Uh, so. Yeah, you can do the math. It's uh, it, it, it takes a stretch. It's a big stretch for her. But it's a stretch for me a little bit, but much more to her. So, so my hat is off for everything she does on on uh, uh, <laughs> on the family to keep us keep us uh, somehow from sinking. I believe that's the correct answer. As somebody <laughs> who's only been married three years, I think that's the correct answer. I, all right, I, I all learned right, that I, much. <laughs> So next up, when it comes to blank, I'm pretty much useless. Any another easy answer? Western blots. Oh. I just, I, I like, look. I don't know. <laughs> I, I already mentioned where I trained as a postdoc, so I should know how to do that. Uh, no, I don't know what it is with me and Western blots. It just doesn't doesn't go together. They're they're bad. Luckily now I don't need to make them myself and do myself anymore. So. So finally, we have uh, some nice ones, but uh, but it's been a struggle uh, all through my PhD postdoc. Uh, always crummy-looking Western blocks. <laughs> well, nobody's perfect. I'm I'm personally very disappointed. I've lost a lot of respect for you, but <laughs> we will continue the interview. Uh, finally, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it's my. Uh, this would be this would be the it's it's the Lego model right next to me here, uh, which is the the slave one of Boba Fett that I got as a present from from my lab members uh, when I I had pneumonia and I had to stay home. They tried to keep me home a little longer and and, uh, and they gave me this uh, monstrous uh, Lego model uh, with many thousand pieces. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was done very quickly, and I was back relatively quickly. But uh, but it's a it's a very important. I I'm a big fan of Star Wars. What can I say? So I have to take the slave one with me. Boba Fett, ladies and gentlemen, 
his most prized possession. And it's very sweet. You're hitting all the markers. Your wife's going to love you. Your lab members are going to love you. We are loving you. And our listeners are certainly going to enjoy you, to say the least. Although they might have lost respect about the Western thing, they'll get over it. (laughs) Anyway, Pekka, thank you so much. This has been really a lot of fun. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you about our work, and uh, and and, and uh, luckily we got to pitch a little bit of, of uh, niche biology into it. So so hopefully more and more people are interested in the next door cell than the stems. I don't think that's going to be an issue. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Remember, next week... We have the last of our mini-series, so tune into that. In two weeks from now, we'll have another fine episode for your listening pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then.